Week four and the war intensifies. Israel's ground incursion into Gaza begins. We'll be speaking to one of the Jewish world's leading historians and to Israel's foremost satirist. How do you make people laugh at a time like this? It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yoni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, uh, two Jews on the news. As you said, Jonathan, we are at week four, uh, which saw the expansion of the ground incursions, the uh, IDF forces now, according to reports, pushing deep into the Gaza Strip, encircling Gaza City. Uh, Also, the first large scale IDF uh, casualties because of, you know, the reason that Israel is fighting a force like Hamas in an urban area where uh, they are entrenched among civilians, and Israel doesn't want to hurt civilians. This makes it for a very, very difficult. So a large number of Israeli soldiers uh, dying in the uh, last six days of this incursion. Of course, uh, more than 1,200 Israelis uh, murdered by Hamas in the uh, terror attack of October 7th, 240 uh, hostages uh, held by Hamas, and reports in Gaza Those are the uh, reports coming out under the Hamas authorities of more than 8,000 Palestinians dead in uh, the attacks by the Israeli Air Force. This is where we are. At the same time, rockets are still raining down on Israeli cities, obviously anti-Israeli demonstrations, anti-Jewish demonstrations uh, uh, really being – having an uptick this week. We will talk about that and more and more calls uh, for a ceasefire. Israel still waiting to see what Hezbollah on the northern uh, part of Israel is planning uh, a very important speech by the leader of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, on Friday, which is after we record. We should just say the only bit of news really on the Israeli end that wasn't distressing or just terrible this week was the fact that um, the IDF rescued uh, from Gaza Ori Megidish, an Israeli soldier, a private, age 19 she is, and she was rescued alive and well, brought back to her family. Obviously, as we said, still 240 hostages held by Hamas, haven't seen the Red Cross, no one knows how they're doing, the youngest of which being a nine-month-old Kfir Bibas. That is where we stand at week four. Yeah, and the um, rescue of that hostage uh, making news around the world. It did come actually after there'd been some speculation that there might have been a sort of big release of hostages back behind the scenes negotiations. There'd been talk that as many as 50 were going to be released. That didn't happen. Um, The border, a Rafa border crossing, did open for some dual nationals to exit Gaza, particularly people in need of medical treatment. So again, those were pictures that were in what has been a sort of bleak story. These were few, these sort of pinpricks of light in all this um, darkness. There has been also some sort of politics at the Israel end. And, that you know, until now, I think there'd been an effort to try and sort of keep some of that at bay. And we might come on to talk about, you know, at least one aspect of this with um, with one of our guests. But a sort of big, a blame game beginning that there was this tweet by Prime Minister Netanyahu where appearing to put the blame away from himself and onto the named heads of intelligence and security, literally naming the men he said were in effect guilty. That tweet then deleted. I mean, I think it was posted relatively late at night in response to that uh, exercise in blame shifting by uh, the Prime Minister Giora Island, who is a former in a major major in the IDF and a former head of the uh, Israel's National Security Council, he then said, "We can't wait for this war to be over." He said publicly, "Netanyahu needs to go and go now." And you know, from our conversations, Johnny, you know that I've been asking that question with whether the political pressure uh, would wait and whether people would be patient for the war to be over before saying. The man who was at the helm on October the seventh needs to pay with his job. So, you know, Giora Island was is a is a high profile figure, but I think there have been some other noises in that direction. And then, obviously, the whole thing um, is is being playing out internationally in a major way with the allies of Israel facing off in many cases domestic pressure to uh, qualify their support for Israel with 
conditions of different kinds and at least with uh with calls for there to be action on the humanitarian front i thought it was noticeable that the uh, spokesman for america's national security council put out a kind of campaign video a sort of two minute video in which he almost you felt he was addressing the democratic party base saying more aid needs to get in we're working with allies on the ground we know that this is an issue there's some but there needs to be more but the way it was done it was edited with music and everything it was sort of it felt to me as if there was a, a decision made in the white house that they need to reassure particularly younger democrats who are tend to be more pro palestinian in their sympathies that you know joe biden's support for israel doesn't mean they are deaf to those calls so that was an interesting bit of politics and you know it's going on all around the world like that so even in this country in britain the labor party lead under huge pressure to back calls for a ceasefire people think he's going to be the next prime minister here but he refused to budge on his position which is no ceasefire yet because israel needs to have the time and space to finish the job in terms of eradicating hamas as a military force yeah i mean as you mentioned there's a lot of politics going on a lot of politics going on in israel and in the u.s so Let's just unpack a little bit of what you said about what Netanyahu and his tweets, because I think this was a watershed moment. Now, we talked about the release or the rescue mission to rescue Ori Megidish, as Netanyahu is actually the one, you know, giving the go ahead for that mission. He's also tweeting a tweet that, you know, ran through Israel and he was slammed for it uh, across the board, even inside his own party. He wrote... Under no circumstances and at no stage was Prime Minister Netanyahu warned of Hamas's intentions. On the contrary, all the security officials, including the head of military intelligence and the head of the Shin Bet, assessed that Hamas had been deterred. So he's pointing the blame in the middle of a war of who is to blame for this situation of October 7th. This, as I said... Um, really created an uproar in Israel. The reports that we had in with the reporting on Channel 12 was that there was a sort of an, a rift between his family that was pressuring him to write this tweet and his advisors on the other side saying, no, no, you can't do this. You can't point fingers at the security establishment while it is at war. It took him about eight hours and he erased that tweet and he apologized. Now, Netanyahu apologizing, Jonathan, is as rare as... Netanyahu apologizing. Really, I don't have a better example. This is an extremely rare incident, and it shows you just how precarious his political position is. Yesterday night on on uh, Channel 12, one of the heads of municipalities in the south from the Likud said, I am no longer part of this party of the Likud anymore. I can't deal with them because it's not only, you remember, not only the security failure of October 7th and the operational failure, it's also the organizational failure because the government can't take care of more than 200,000 Israelis who are now displaced and can't live in their own home in the South and in the North because of these threats and because of what happened. In terms of that vacuum, the 200,000 people, displaced people not being looked after, I've been getting lots of messages from people inside Israel marveling at the volunteer effort that has sprung up to fill that void. People have been saying, look, everything is bleak, but if there is one good news story here, it is the civil society that has come together. Uh, people might have seen some of the pictures of these sort of pop-up offices, warehouses where clothes, you know, medical supplies, nappies for babies and so on are being distributed, where people have got phone banks, they're organizing transport, because you have hundreds of thousands of displaced persons inside Israel from both the south, from those kibbutzim that have been burnt out by Hamas, and in the north where people were evacuated right on that northern border with Lebanon, um, mm -hmm. and they suddenly need, you know, provision. And the narrative that has been put to me is the Israeli government, the machinery of the state has not been there. And instead, these volunteers, some they say formed by the protest movement about the judicial mm -hmm. changes, um, yep. have stepped in and filled the breach. And it's a remarkable thing to see. There was a video that I think went fairly viral um, earlier on this week showing those images. So it's just the flip side of the politics of government and establishment failing is the people stepping up. Yeah, I mean, and you're, you've accurately described what's going on in my country better than I have. We've discussed this volunteer network in the first episode we did about the war, but really it is 
the only heartwarming part of what is going on here is the Israelis are really coming together uh, to help each other, really, uh, in the absence of of a government that's functional and and helping them out. Um, So this is what is happening internally in Israel. You mentioned the John Kirby. Yeah, it kind of looked like a campaign ad. You're right about that, uh, John Kirby being the uh, coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. What he said that sounded to me very interesting about the aid to Gaza was the word fuel, which, of course, is sort of the main uh, argument point here between Israel and between and between Israel and the Biden administration. Israel is saying, I think, with some sort of justification that fuel is used by Hamas, that there's enough fuel right now to operate uh, anything needed in in the Gaza Strip. Hamas is taking it for its own terror tunnels. And the more comes in, the more it's going to be confiscated by Hamas. So so that is obviously a very big issue for Israel. Also, Israeli officials that are looking very closely at the humanitarian situation are saying, look, there is enough, for example, enough medicine. The only problem is that there is such a mess that medicine is not arriving the places it should be in. And now they're talking, at least on the Israeli side, of having this sort of coordination, uh, better coordination to find, you know, something of a, to act as if this is a disaster area and to find that kind of assistance and coordinating. Uh, One of the Israeli officials uh, told me stories about what what kind of medicine arrives where and why that is an issue. So that is what is going on right now on the ground. So I think what that Kirby video also is just showing, yes, the political impact this is all having, very clearly that he, the White House, have decided there are Democrats, particularly younger Democrats, they need to speak to, those people being really concerned about the humanitarian situation. And also, I think now, this very uh, you know alarming, striking figure of just how many people are dead in Gaza. The estimate is north of 8,000 people killed. It's just an enormous figure, and it's happened very quickly. And there are people all over the world, including even those who are and were initially well disposed to Israel's predicament and understood that it had to hit back, who nevertheless are really shaken by a death toll this high. It definitely is uh, the case that the Biden administration is saying to Israel, you need, we're with you completely on the objective to destroy Hamas. We need you to be as careful as possible. Of course, Israel is also saying we are killing Hamas terrorists, but the United States is saying you need to be as careful as possible uh, with uh, by not hurting uh, civilians. That is uh, sure Israel is tr- attempting to do that. Obviously, war is a, compli- is a very complicated thing. And all of this, as it goes on and unfolds inside Israel, the ripple effects, the shockwaves are felt, as you and I have talked about on here from the beginning, outside Israel in the wider Jewish world. There is this uptick, according to the Anti-Defamation League, something like 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States, an even bigger leap as measured by the people who keep figures here in the UK, but indications of this all over Europe. I think people were horrified all over Europe and all over the world. I think people in Europe were horrified by these pictures in the 14th arrondissement of Paris of homes and shops of Jewish people being marked with blue stars. I mean, just the iconography of that obviously evokes uh, the darkest memories from The last century, there was an incident, and I think somebody involved has now been arrested at Cornell University in New York State, where Jewish students had faced a series of blood-curdling threats, really, posted on a campus discussion forum uh, in which Jews were described as rats that needed to be eliminated uh, from Cornell and the warnings there that Jews were fearing for their safety. I think the university of authorities have now suggested or in, instructed that classes will be cancelled on Friday uh, so that everyone can kind of take a breath. I mean, there's more and more of this going on. Uh, one indicator of it that has really hit, hit a nerve, and it's happened in lots of places around the world, are these posters of the hostages, faces of the hostages, especially of the young hostages, the children, the babies, uh, under this um, heading kidnapped and then photographs of them and these posters being torn down. It's happened all over. There's videos, again, of people being caught tearing them down. 
and then other people remonstrating with them saying please don't do that and the and then an argument ensuing it's just an example a very concrete example of how what is happening inside Israel and inside Gaza is being played out on the streets of Buenos Aires or Paris or New York or Sydney or London or wherever and people are seeing it everywhere so this sense that we're all going through one big episode uh, together Israelis and Jews has been really, you know, underlined this week in a way that no one would ever have wanted. Yes. On that note of we are going something through together, we maybe should note uh, that uh, you and I recorded a bonus episode, a very interesting one, I can say, that we will air it on next week. We will uh, air it on uh, Tuesday. It will drop. You and I trying to air together what is going on in our communities, the Israeli one and the Jewish uh, one, the diaspora one, uh, we called it war therapy or wartime therapy. But that's for next week. Yeah. And we're talking about how this is all affecting Israelis and Jews. And we're being very candid how it's affected you and me and the conversations we have with each other. So it is a little bit like couples counseling. It is called, as you say, war therapy. And people will pick that up next week. We are talking uh, on this episode with two fascinating people. Later in the program, a man who runs, has been running for two decades, uh, the most popular show in Israel, which is also a satire program, which has also been back on air last week, Eretz uh, Deret, a very famous uh, satire program here in this country. We want to hear from him how to actually do this kind of satire in a time like this. That's Muli Segev, and that's coming up later. Right now, we want to talk to someone who is really, I think, uniquely positioned to talk to us about what is happening in college campuses, particularly in the United States, why Jewish students are not safe, why this is happening, and what to do about it. Simon Sebag Montefiore is an acclaimed historian and biographer, author of Stalin and Jerusalem, a biography. Uh, he joins us now having written a piece for The Atlantic, which has caused a lot of interest around the world. The headline is, The Decolonization Narrative is Dangerous and False. Uh, the piece talking specifically about Israel-Palestine. Uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore, really good to have you on Unholy. Thanks for being with us. I, I think it would be really helpful just to walk people through this argument, because even hearing that word, decolonization for some people listening to Unholy, I think they'll think, well, hang on, how does that relate to Israel-Palestine? So as close as you can, because it's a long, really thought through historical essay, what's the argument you're advancing uh, that relates to Israel-Palestine on the one hand and decolonization on the other? Well, I think the first, I think to start from the very beginning, you know, I, I, I approach this from a from this position. You know, I believe that um, it's essential that there is you know, a strong Israel and a strong Palestine um, state created as soon as possible. And as soon as that is, that is a viable proposition. Um, I mourn the, the, the civilian, the civilian slaughtered in Israel um, by Hamas. But I also, uh, I also mourn the Palestinian civilians killed in Gaza and every one of those. Um, I mourn as I mourn the Israelis. So that's the first thing to say at this moment. Um, but much of the historical narrative over the last 15 years has increasingly um, been founded on a, an ideology, a narrative, call it what you will, a system of history which regards Israel as a, um, an illegitimate sort of growth on the world community that is a, uh, a, a, an imperial colonialist um, entity, um, and its people are settler colonists, and and that those people have no rights as people. They are illegitimate people who should not be in Israel. And um, much of the justification uh, for what's happened with Hamas has been based, the, the, among apologists in the West, has been based on this ideology. And over the last 15 years, this has become the accepted version, the, in a way, the sort of um, default position. And many and many of the books you see recommended now mention this phrase, settler colonial 
uh, settler colonialists, many of the justifications um, for Hamas as a resistance movement have been based on this concept of of um, Israeli civilians not being normal civilians, but being somehow ripe for slaughter, deportation, because um, they are this this strange um, this strange phrase settler colonialists or settler colonialists and you see this on many respectable histories now you see it in many respectable academies you see it on the posters of people who are who are um apologizing denying and justifying hamas atrocities and for about 15 years i've been watching this and thinking like you know this bears no resemblance whatsoever to the real history either of the creation of Israel or of the Palestinian tragedy. And so this week, I suddenly, I finally thought enough already, you know, one needs to, one needs to analyze this and just go through um, the points of this decolonialization narrative and just show that it isn't based on real history. It's sort of zombie history and sham history and what we actually have in, in Israel-Palestine is two just um, ethnic narratives, cultures, communities, um, who both entirely are legitimate, um, legitimate nations that need legitimate states. And that is the basic point of, of, this, um, of this essay that I've written. I love that you call it zombie ideology. You, you write in your, in your piece that this sort of new leftist analysis, you call it, has sort of taken over, replaced the traditional universalist leftist values, um, decency, respect for human life. And I wonder how we got here. I mean, how did we get to this point where, where intellectuals, you hear people like Judith Butler, right, saying that Hamas and Hezbollah are social movements and part of the global left. I mean, these are supposed to be educated people, intellectuals. Like, how did we arrive at this moment that you're actually arguing with people? Can you just condemn the murder of children? How does that that's possible? Right. I mean, that's what, that's what really led me to write the piece, because, of course, you know, it's just it's just an extraordinary thing that there's an ideology that has introduced this kind of mad um, indecency and lack of moral base base in very educated people. And there are a lot of things going on here, micro and macro. I mean, first of all, the ideology itself is the decolonialization is a mixture of sort of Marxist dialectic, uh, Soviet propaganda and also a sort of variation on U.S. anti-racist uh, theory um, of today, which was really kind of invented to right wrongs that are, that are particular to the American experience and don't actually apply in any shape or form to Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. But the last part of it is it also deploys traditional anti-Semitic tropes from the Middle Ages, the blood libel, for example, to the 19th century, to the 20th century. And so it's a very, very toxic mix. How did it get here? I mean, partly this is because in our, in our universities, in our NGOs, in our anti-war anti crimes humanitarian foundations, we have just kind of, people have taken their eye off the ball and have just, in, a, in an effort to be, to introduce equality and, equi and equity in our institutions, we have handed over these institutions often to activists who, for whatever reason, we have farmed out and they have kind of accepted a menu of, ideolo of ideological positions, some of which are very admirable and some of which are preposterous, and this is the, and this is the latter. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, that's the sort of micro version of it you know, why this has happened. A bigger version of it is in the West, um, a, a strange phenomenon. I mean, that, you know, that many people in the West now feel extremely guilty and shameful about the West's record in empire. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, Israel is, has, be has become regarded as the last example of a state created by empire and therefore um, has become the sort of manifestation of everything that's wrong with Western empire. Even though, again, in the history, as I lay out in the article, 
Israel was actually created by a Jewish revolt using terrorism, of course, after 1945 to 48 against the British Empire. But anyway, again, the actual events in history are irrelevant to this viewpoint. Um, and so that's part of it. And of course, you know, and it's led, I, I call it leftist. Some people have criticized me for doing that because a lot of leftists are very reasonable um, and very sensible. And there is this, I, I've always been a great sort of admirer of the leftist universalist approach to history in which these things, the lives of civilians, um, the protection of civilians, uh, you know, and so on, um, are, are essential. Your argument applies uh, absolutely suitably and aptly to the creation of what I would call Israel proper, Israel in 1948. And you make the argument that it's, it's completely inexact and, and wrong to describe it as a colonial enterprise in the way that the critics would describe. I wonder to what extent you think, though, this narrative has nevertheless taken hold not because of Israel's existence since 1948, but rather because of what's happened since 1967. And there, the notion of a 56-year occupation that's branded under international law as that, that does indeed involve settlements and so on, and that is the word that is used, settlers, people look at that and think, that looks a lot like colonization, and therefore they read from the 1967 to the present day period a judgment which then is then applied to the entire enterprise, and that it's that that has allowed this in. What do you make of that view? That that's a totally fair point, and it's one I make in the article. In fact, um, very clearly, um, there are settlers in the West Bank, and their behaviour is often disgraceful. It is at the moment. What's happening in the West Bank at the moment is disgraceful and appalling, and with Ben Gavir allowing these um, these settlers to to abuse Palestinian civilians, so that is actually that is actually an essential point in all of this, and I make that very clearly in the article. But my bigger point in the article is that you cannot expand that to the whole nine million people or ten million people in in Israel, and this. This, I, this approach to Jewish, to Jewish and Israeli history depends on various kind of basic kind of misapprehensions and which are actually flaws in the argument. There's some truth in them, but they're, but, but actually they are, they are incomplete and often completely wrong. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that, you know, Jews aren't completely foreign to Israel in the first place. There is a thousand years of Jewish presence there. Um, when obviously the Jewish kingdoms, then there's the, then there's, there's 2000 years when there's always a Jewish presence there. But even if, as, if you reject all of that as irrelevant ancient history, as some Palestinian historians do, by the way, and one of the, you know, when I was writing my Jerusalem book, I remember I spoke to many um, Palestinian historians who told me that, you know, obviously in public, we deny that there was ever a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, <laughs> but in private, um, course there was one you know um so i mean one of the reasons why i want to write all these this article and why i wrote my jerusalem book is to is to, is really that the only way to make peace is to recognize each other's narrative and with some truth and that was the mission i did to which i embarked on to write my jerusalem the, the, the biography which is a sort of history of the middle east through jerusalem so that's the first the first part the ancient jewish connection to judea the second, the second part is even if you, even if you regard the immigration after 1881 as entirely illegitimate, five generations later, this is the home for, for Israelis. And so that's another part of it. These are not settler colonialists. Um, we, we regard anyone who's lived anywhere for one generation as native to that country. And, um, uh, you know, and right for, you know, they deserve citizenship. They regard, in Britain, for example, we regard anyone who's been here for one generation as British. And we're, del we, we're proud of that, but not in this case. So that's another problem with this. The third problem is the, the idea of, um, Jews as, as too privileged to be oppressed. And this is a sort of offshoot from, 
U.S. racial theory, which again, as I said, is you know particularly applies to the American experience and doesn't apply to Israel. And you know the, the whole idea of Israelis as white and and as, as as Palestinians as people of color is preposterous because it's not often known and never appears in these version of history that well over 50% of Israelis are from the Middle East. They're not Poles from, they're not Poles or Russians um, by descent. And, and so the whole of that narrative is, is just basically nonsense. You know, it's interesting. First of all, I have to make the point. I, I, I completely understand. And, and Jonathan makes that distinction too and saying, you know, they're not settler colonialists because they're inside the green line. I would say no one deserves to be murdered in this way. I'm no, I know you to, two don't think that. I'm just saying just to make the note of the fact that no one deserves to be murdered this way, even if they live outside the green line. But of course, I know what we're doing re- rhetorically. I just had to make that point. I, I do want to... No, that's, I so agree. I so agree with that, But, but I, I do want to say... Um, Jonathan is, by the way, he's nodding because he expected this from the Israeli to make that point. But, but I, I, what I'm worried about here, again, as, as someone who has a niece who's in, in college right now and feels terribly threatened, we agree on the fact that we're living in a world where you don't have, I mean, you do have empirical, empirical truths, but people have their own yeah. narratives. How do you fight this, Simon? I mean, now that, that you've so accurately detailed what is going on here. Right, that this theory is, yeah. is is put on top of all of the rest of the mess that we have here, right? The national conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and the jihadist war that Hamas is, is now uh, started with Israel and Iran and the Shiite, you know, all of that. You have this theory. What do you do? Even on the basic level, start with protecting Jewish students. But then what? What else can be done? Well, here? we've got a challenge. Well, I think that I think the biggest point about this is, you, you know, what you start just to go back to where you just started that yeah. question is, I mean, even if these people, even if everyone were settlers and colonists, they no one, no civilians deserve to get massacred, mutilated, kidnapped, raped, and beheaded. So that that sort of that goes that goes without saying. Though again, I do say that in the article yeah. because it has to be said. But more than that, this dehumanizes Israeli civilians, and more than that. It, it, it actually is a particularly stupid and pernicious view because it rules out a peace process ever. If Israelis are all illegitimate and therefore ripe for slaughter or deportation and that they are all settler colonialists, um, you cannot negotiate with these people. And that means they'll never be a, they'll never be a Palestinian state. And therefore, that's why it's a particularly pernicious an extreme and maximalist and el- eliminationist view. But how to, how to counter it? I mean, first of all, American universities have to do better. You know, I mean, one of the sort of tragedies of the, of, of, of this in the West is that more and more institutions have been handed over to sort of activists rather than scholars who are now proving incapable of really defending Jewish students or students who don't, don't wish to embrace this this extremely maximalist and eliminationist viewpoint. And we're seeing that I mean, today in Harvard, mm-hmm. there's footage of Jewish students being chased around Harvard. Now, where are the, where is, you know, where are the officials of Harvard? Where is the university here? This is the disgrace. And we're seeing the downfall of great universities here. What is the solution? Well, the first one is to do what I've started to try and do, which is to challenge this and expose it as a zombie ideology that looks alive, but when challenged, turns out to be um, not to stand up in any part of its argument. And so that's the first part of it. And we haven't really done that because because of the particular cultural place and the cultural wars where we are in the West, people have been afraid to challenge parts of this uh, progressive viewpoint. So the first thing is just to do discuss it like we are, Mm -hmm. For people to write articles, Jonathan's also written about this, for example. Mm-hmm. Simon Sharma's written about it. There are a lot of people who've written about it. We, the first thing to say is that whenever you see an article or a book where it says settler colonialist or, or the decolonialization narrative on, on the front, just got to say, like, this is not a legitimate, reputable historic history book. This is a, just an anti-Israel polemic. Mm-hmm. And part of it is another thing. It's like, if Harvard is no longer Harvard, you know, p- 
people will, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to register protests in our civil society. That's what civil civil society is for. And if we don't like the way Harvard is is treating history and treating its students, then many people will start to send their children to a university that does look after their students. If Harvard is no longer Harvard, we will go somewhere else. Another another point is, you know, funders, if philanthropists and former students stop to fund universities that don't make their students safe, that in the end will have a large effect. Mm -hmm. Because even though these universities are famously vastly endowed, um, you know, with wealth, actually they depend on this kind of expectation of income. The same goes for all these, you know, all these NGOs. These you know, the number of um, humanitarian foundations and anti-war crimes NGOs in which the leaders of these institutions were celebrating selective war crimes on this, on October the seventh is astonishing. No names here, but should those people still be in charge of these organisations? You know, they should actually they should they should lose their jobs. You know, you cannot be selective about war crimes. And and um, so I think that in all these cases, we should start to make clear that we don't accept this viewpoint. Mm. And this viewpoint is not a is no longer a respectable viewpoint for a university, for an anti-war crimes, for a humanitarian foundation to take. And I think that actually this is, we can't immediately solve the problem in Gaza. We can't, for those of us in, in Britain, who are trying to write history, we can't um, scatter Hamas ourselves. But what we can do is challenge this this analysis. And at the same time, as campaigning against the many injustices that Palestinians do suffer and that are entirely right to draw attention, we, you know, um, the disgraceful Israeli government at the moment, the disgraceful actions of um, settlers in the West Bank at the moment, all of these things are things that we should draw attention to. But at the same time, you know, we should not draw attention to it. We should not support um, this this zombie ideology. You say you, you sitting in London, you two can't scatter, help us scatter Hamas. We need all the help we can get. You can, you can try if you want. <laughs> um, no, but that. honestly, I mean, I have to tell you too that this week I, um, I spoke to some uh, Israeli generals who told me that their counterparts, the American generals here advising them, said yeah. that they are actually not concerned by the public opinion in the U.S., but that they are concerned about what is happening on college campuses. This is pretty remarkable that the generals here would say, the thing that concerns us is that, because that is the future. That is the future generation. And it seems so lost. I mean, I'm heartened by what you're saying, Simon, about, yes, you have to make it clear that students have to be safe. And if not, we're going to, you know, deal with the endowments and deal with how the the institution itself does. But in the, the sort of deep sense when you look at it closely, you sort of lose, I don't want to say hope in humanity, that would be a bit gloomy, but this is the next generation and this is what they they think. It's it's terribly depressing. Well, students are always kind of, students are always um, very attracted by extremism and, and very attracted by, by violence and revolution. So, you know, we don't have, to, it's not such a surprise that students are um, espousing loopy views mm-hmm. But obviously, it is extraordinary that you have Western students at expensive universities who are advocating the slaughter of of, civil, of of 10 million civilians. And that is extraordinary. And something, again, needs to be challenged and should be challenged by the leaderships of these universities. You know, the leadership of, of places like Harvard have actually been extremely slow and obfuscating and, and reluctant to really take these things on. And we need to appoint brave people who, you know, people who show a bit of bravery and a bit of and a bit of respect for the values of civil society in a liberal democracy. And if they don't, we need to appoint other people. Before we let you go, another word that has been used much, much more plentifully in this period than I ever remember, loosely thrown around as if it's just a, a, an obvious, is uh, the word genocide. And I wonder whether you and your fellow historians feel you need to saddle up and put the armor on for that battle as well as the use of the phrase settler colonialism, because that is a very specific word with a specific meaning, and yet it is being banded around as if it's 
just a, a statement of the obvious uh, if there's a battle to be fought about the word genocide? Well, I think I think um, this is in part uh, a sort of mirror. You, this is in part of the anti-Semitic narrative where you take examples of anti of anti-Semitic violence in a, from Jewish history and present it in a in a dark mirror image um, of the Israeli treat uh, as part of the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. And for conspiracists, this has a sort of a neat, neat attraction. It sounds like it could be true because it is a direct mirror image, but actually it isn't. Um, you know, 24% of Israelis are um, Israeli Arabs or Druze. They are thriving in Israel, in fact. And so there isn't apartheid and there isn't genocide going on in, those, in, in, in that country. And we have to take on the use of that word. In the article... I've been roundly criticized because I mentioned in passing that um, the Palestinian population has increased massively um, in the last 30 years. And there are various definitions of genocide. It would be an unusual genocide where that was taking place. And some people have, accused, have, been, have, have accused me of all sorts of things in, in saying this. I, I celebrate the fact that the Palestinian population has increased. And I and I I also denounce and deplore any of the harassment of of um, Palestinians that has taken place. And I I value every Palestinian life just as I value Israeli lives. But this isn't genocide. We appreciate your time so much. I mean we've been wanting to have you on for such a long time. Uh and we're really glad that you that you can join us uh on this conversation. It's lovely to be with you. And thanks for having me both. You love it to meet and you. you so, Thank you. Shalom. Thank you. And thanks, the Jonathan. article, if you want to read it, is The Decolonization Narrative is Dangerous and False. It's on theatlantic.com. We strongly recommend it. And uh, Simon C. Ben Montefiore, thanks so much for coming on Unholy. Thanks for having me. A very clarifying piece that Simon Seabag Montefiore wrote, and I think that was a clarifying conversation. I think this point about the decolonization narrative is where the debate is moving, and we uh, need to be alert to the points he made, especially this, to my mind, key thing, which is the branding of all Israelis as this category that has been essentially uh, regarded now as sort of less than human, which is the, the settler colonial or the colonial settler. If you put all Israelis in that bracket, suddenly the whole way the country is looked at is changed. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's an important shift that I think he's identifying. Yes, and I thought I found it very interesting what he said about talking to university donors. If, they, if the universities can't make these establishments safe for Jewish students, then maybe they will understand other ways that they should uh, uh, do that. And normally, I think that would be our big sort of conversation of the week. But this time, because these are extraordinary times, we are having two. And this is prompted by you sending a message to me and saying, you won't believe it, but this uh, landmark show on Israeli TV has come back earlier than in a way people might have anticipated. Landmark show, which is, of course, Israel's number one satirical program. Eretz Nederet, or in English, It's a Wonderful Country, is often described as Israel's Saturday Night Live. So in that regard, Muli Segev is the Israeli Lauren Michaels, the show's creator, executive producer, and showrunner for the past 21 years. Eretz Nederet, you must know, is incredibly popular in Israel. The whole country watches it. Last week, they aired what I assume is their most difficult show yet. What made a splash around the world was the BBC skit. We want to talk about that and a lot more. Muli, thank you so much for talking to us today on Unholy. Thanks for having me. We're very happy to have you. And a, a few years ago, you spoke to Malcolm Gladwell on his Revisionist History podcast. This is what he said about your show. He said, it goes further than the kind of TV satire that we have in the US or the UK, maybe because the stakes are so much higher in Israel. Maybe in a country with a tortured history, suffering under constant threat, the boundaries that satire needs to push up against are more real. I think this has never been more true than last Wednesday when the show came back while Israel was still reeling from the massacre of October 7th. Talk us through the decision to try and make Israelis smile when absolutely nothing is funny. You know, uh, throughout our uh, 20 years run, we were uh, on the air during 
a lot of traumatic uh, events, wars, even during COVID, uh, we never missed a show because I truly believe, we truly believe that uh, comedy and laughter is one of the best cures for anxiety and uh, fear. It's an old Israeli secret. It's an old Jewish secret. You know, laughing at the face of death. That's, that's our trick along the years. So in Israel, whenever there is a, a traumatic event, we need to laugh about it immediately. Even after uh, elections, you know, which for some people are traumatic events, uh, as you well know, we go on the air like half hour after the exit polls. I don't think it's happening anywhere else in the world because a part of the psychological processing of, of, of events in Israel uh, is the, the comedy angle, the satirical angle, the proportional response, as you, as you, as you uh, well uh, know uh, this, uh, this term, because laughing about whatever happening makes it smaller, make, makes it like proportionate, and, uh, and that's what we do. So I'm, I'm interested in this word you said immediately, because even within that, there is soon and then there's too soon. Yeah. So, this, so tell us this how you case, make that judgment, because I think that came up even this week. Yeah, this case was, was different because it's not only anxiety and fear that we had to tackle. There's also grief. Uh, and the country was deeply in grief for, for two or three weeks. And we couldn't even think about, you know, doing something like that. And we had a lot of processing to do. I, I put my writers on Zoom meetings immediately after the, what happened, not for doing a show, just for talking about it and trying to find something sane to say about everything. And it took us, whatever it took us, it took us 19 days, which coincidentally and with no planning, it was exactly the, the number of days it took uh, Saturday Night Live to go up on the air after 9-11. So maybe that's the... That's the period that needs, I don't know what, I don't know how to call it because you, you don't really uh, understand what's happening, but you know, to, to, to make some kind of uh, sane reaction to it. And, and then you had a similar decision to make with a broadcast, I think, that was just going to go out on Wednesday of this week and then was postponed. Just talk us through what happened. Um, we're making uh, another episode for this Wednesday, and in the morning we we found out uh, that a lot of uh, uh, Israeli soldiers uh, were killed. And you know, you you just have to feel the atmosphere and the uh, the national mood, and make your own decisions because it's it's not a regular time, and we felt that it's not it, it's not the right evening to to take a break. And I think it was the right decision, and we postponed it to hopefully Sunday. But even in the in the first uh, last week, in the first show after the war started, it wasn't a clear cut decision. Uh, we were debating it, and and you know there were voices who told us that it was too soon or inappropriate. But also a lot of people approached us and said that they really need it. They need this this break from the news to be to feel sane and normal again for half an hour and the show was very well received so uh it was the right decision uh last week and i think it was the the right decision this week not to not to go on the air you really do have the, the your finger on the pulse of the nation we should say and also we should say that the cast of eretz Nederet have been going through different communities in israel the communities that have been displaced and meeting with these people who went through really the most horrendous experiences uh and i think also trying to maybe make them feel a little bit better on a sort of the face-to-face kind of contact. So you really do feel that kind of, again, what the nation is feeling. I do want to ask because it was, the show was pretty clearly steering, the, the, the show that you came back on last week was pretty clearly steering away from politics, except for one, one bit, which was Netanyahu's uh, speech. Uh, Netanyahu on the show impersonated by the extremely talented Mariano Edelman. And you made uh, fun of the fact that Netanyahu is 
really physically, it's impossible. It looks like it's physically impossible for him to take responsibility. The interesting thing was that half an hour before that, Netanyahu uh, sent the different news networks, his own and his re- the real Netanyahu sent his own announcement saying, again, everything but taking responsibility, including the phrase, I take responsibility for Israel's future. And then in those wonderful moments in which satire kind of mirrors reality, half an hour later, your skit comes on. I mean, it was really this brilliant moment that Eretz Nederet has a lot of these brilliant moments. I want to uh, just uh, hear a little bit of that. I'll try and translate that for our listeners who don't speak Hebrew. Let's, let's hear that. Yom Shabbat, October, קיבלתי לראשונה את הדיווח על כך שברצועת עזה קיים ארגון טרור בשם חמאס. אני מקווה שאני אומר את זה נכון, שמטרתו להשמיד את מדינת ישראל. באותה השיחה גם עודכנתי שאותו ארגון משגר אלינו טילים כבר יותר מ-14 שנה, והבנתי שמדי חודש היו מועברים לאותו ארגון מיליוני דולרים, להפתעתי ובאישורי. Uh, so what Netanyahu here is saying, essentially, I uh, on the morning of the October 7th, I realized there's an organization called Hamas. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm surprised to learn that it has been shooting rockets over Israel for 14 years. And to my and it has been to my surprise and under my authorization that we have uh, transferred money to this organization uh, every month. I mean, this is really, you know, it was a very funny to, to the extent that anything was funny that that day. Talk me to me a little bit about that decision to, to yes to go for one political skit in that on that show. Uh, we were we were debating that too because we the show is is, is very political uh, on on regular days, but this time we felt that the country needs more uplifting materials and and not dwelling on the on the debate the, the political debate. But we did this one skit about Netanyahu because that was, uh, you just can't do a show like that without mentioning this. And um, actually we taped it on the afternoon and, and we went to the editing room and then it was announced that Netanyahu is going to make a speech. And for a moment I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen if he is going to take responsibility and <laughs> it will ruin the, the, the skit. But then we remember who are we talking about and everybody relaxed. <laughs> yeah, good outcome. It worked yeah. out fine for you. <laughs> I thought they, uh, it is a brilliant sketch. The, 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 the thing that took your show to a whole new audience around the world, you had at least two that I've seen, English language skits. Mm-hmm. One we talked about on the podcast last week about the BBC with, I think, is it Harry Whitegilt, the reporter, um, which was very, you know, good fun. And then you had uh, a Greta Thunberg sketch. How dare you? I stand with Gaza. Hamas didn't hurt even one dolphin in their attack. So Israel, stop bombing with your polluting jets. Why can't you use bicycle? How dare you? The thought that it prompted in my mind was um, whether in a moment like this, it is easier and in some ways perhaps more unifying for your audience if you are pointing the finger outside the country so that the object of the satire isn't yourselves when it's still raw, but rather BBC, but also do-gooding leftists and liberals outside Israel. I mean, you know, you're just coming up with brilliant ideas but what's your own reading of of that um yeah naturally in these times it's harder to it's not harder i don't think we we really want to uh you know dwell in the the internal conflicts which we we deal with all those years and the 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 show deals almost exclusively with internal affairs uh, and we have been known to be very a very critical voice um against this this government and uh the right wing and um we often even you know pointed out the blind spots of of uh israeli people in the palestinian issue but it, it wasn't the time uh for that or it's not yet the time for that because we're as you know in war and in in a state of 
shock still. But, you know, anger is a very good trigger for satire. And we, uh, as, as most Israelis, are very, let's say, disappointed with the one-sided way this war has been covered by international uh, media. And um, the BBC have always had the most extreme version of this, you know, biased attitude. So it was clear that it, we, we, we were gonna, we're gonna approach that. And, uh, you know, the hospital bombing incident was so, such a, a good example of, of, even the most established media outlets like New York Times and, and, and the BBC rushed to conclusion so quickly when it comes to Israel. So, it, it was it was like like a sketch that writes itself, you know. It's really amazing that uh, they they call themselves journalists and they they gather information from. The t- I I won't say terrorist organization because they 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 won't even call Hamas a terrorist organization, but they're so credible, uh, and and they take the their their numbers and their facts like no no questions asked and. For us, it's, uh, it's, it makes us very angry, but it's also ridiculously funny. <laughs> about that, we should say that you have been you know, pretty active on Twitter, maybe more active than usual days. Uh, you also pick, picked a fight with uh, Gary Lineker, which is, which is quite a thing. I mean, that kind of happened on Twitter, too. Yeah, you know, all my life I've, I've, I've been dreaming... To talk with Gary Lineker is a, is a personal hero of mine. I was, I, I'm such a, I'm such an England fan. And I remember myself crying in the 1990, uh, semifinals in Rome after in- England was kicked out. And, and okay, now I, I had the chance. I had this attention and we're talking about war. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> This is you. I mean, Gary Lineker was just for. I'm thinking of our listeners who are neither Israeli nor British, and so for, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of our American listeners. Gary Lineker, major English football star, soccer star, and but now big broadcaster. In, in some ways, the number one broadcaster in Britain because he fronts the weekly football show match of the day. And there had already been grumblings uh, that he hadn't tweeted after October the seventh, but then he did tweet essentially saying, what, what, you know, calling for a ceasefire. And you tweeted, well, tell us, because you, you, you made, uh, you know, characteristically a joke and tell us yeah. what his, you, what the joke was and how he replied. Um, if I remember correctly, I, I wrote that, uh, uh, a ceasefire at this point will be like, uh, ending the 1966, uh, World Cup final on the 12th uh, minute when the score was 1-0 for Germany. And he replied that it's a awful and thoughtless analogy. So I replied that he was, that I, I totally agree with him because for us it's, it's not a game. It's, it's our life. Our life is at stake. And, uh, I, I don't, re- I don't remember w- exactly what I, what I wrote, but yeah, for us it's not a game. Maybe for you guys in, in England, when you have to have an opinion about everything, uh, and you call for a ceasefire, you don't really understand what it means uh, to us, and uh, it's it's really amazing that people got this obligation for an opinion about something they know nothing about, and uh, calling a ceasefire. Would you call a ceasefire uh, on on World War Two before you defeated the Nazis? We can't get a ceasefire with with people that swore to wipe us off the face of the planet. Um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, for me, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's also very sad. You, by the way, you wrote, it's, for us, it's not a game, we're fighting for our lives here and we'll appreciate your support. I think that goes Mm, beyond Gary Lineker, uh, for sure. But, you know, this is an interesting conversation because in other countries, Muli, like people who are the executive producers or the satire show are probably going to be very, I mean, woke. You know, they're going to be very sort of on the progressive woke side. And it kind of looks like, especially with the Greta Thunberg uh, sketch that you are, I don't want to say going against your people, but, you know, going against the satire crowd or satire people around the Western world. Um, I don't think so. I think okay. that satire and, and the woke people are enemies. Um, and, and I know that for a fact that it's just, they're just 
scared of them. Mm-hmm. Because generally speaking, uh, woke movement has castrated comedians in America and, and Britain for too long, and it starts to black- backlash uh, mm-hmm. in recent years. It's impossible to, to be funny when you're constantly worried uh, about def- offending somebody. And um, these people have lost the ability to take a joke, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, on a more serious note, I think that one of the things that uh, became so clear in the past three weeks that there is nothing liberal or progressive about these people. What we see on campuses in, in America is horrifying. It's disgusting. Uh, students and professors that supports, openly supports massacre of civilians. Actually, in our next show that will hopefully air on Sunday. We have another English language um, skit about two students that, you know, the one that rip, rips off the hostages posters. And I won't tell you exactly what's going on, but they go to Columbia uh, Yuntisemiti. <laughs> that's, that's the name. <laughs> you know, I, I've been speaking to to some well-known comedians, Jewish comedians in America. Mm-hmm. And um, I found them terrifying, terrified. And, and I think they have what they called an identity crisis because they feel betrayed by the people that they thought were their friends, their colleagues, their role models. Something... W- some, something went very, very wrong with the, the moral uh, compass of, of, of those so-called liberals in, 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 in America and, and, and in UK also. I think that's really fascinating because you are another example. There are many other examples of people in fields that are used to being critical of authority and having allies and comrades in this case in your case it's satirists around the world and suddenly feeling you're out of step with them you're a version of what i think novelists have gone through you know uh, scholars historians there's a version of this in every field i think where particularly fields that tend i think like your was saying that tend to be sort of liberal um mm-hmm. so it's a wider phenomenon i think that you're part of um and that's you know it's informed your comedy um i just thought of what i was me- meaning to ask you which is even before now you mentioned that one thing israeli humor jewish humor have in common is laughing in the face of tragedy definitely but in general before now jewish humor israeli humor are they similar are they different where's the meeting point between them Wow. Oh my God. That's, uh, <laughs> he does that. He does that. Jonathan does that. He asked that question and when you're completely stumped and now you're like, I don't know. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a whole new show. It's a, it's a, it's a whole separate show. <laughs> Jonathan. Um, I have to think about it. You know, it's, it's, it's the same difference as, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, Jewish comedian and Israeli comedians. We are a lot of uh, a lot more uh, brutal and 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 raw and uh, not PC or whatever because we deal with uh, you know harsher realities. But the basic we, we you know uh, we come from the same origin. When I see a Jewish American comedian, I identify uh, immediately with a lot of things, a lot of uh, you know feelings and and the psychologic of 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 it but but we are different we are very different hey we had a whole podcast dedicated to we are different so you're really mm-hmm. you're uh yeah you're really in the motto here um muli you know this definitely it's our 21st season which was supposed to be opened up i think needless to say will be completely different than any other season you've done so far right i mean just in a- anything every tone everything will be under the shadow of this mm-hmm. of this event Yes, unfortunately, it's ironic <laughs> um, that uh, when we, you know, last season was a very, very hard season for us because uh, we dealt almost exclusively with uh, the judicial overhaul, and it was a very, hard, a very tough time in Israel because of the the divide in the nation, and it was hard. So. When we started to develop this season, 
I said to the writer, oh, I wish we can make a season where we um, just got to be funny. No, po no politics, just fun and funny and <laughs> crazy stuff. And, you know, it's not going to happen. Hmm. Um, but yes, I think that the show is going to be different. The whole country is going to be different in yeah. the shadow of, of these events. Um, Israel is a very upbeat and happy place. Uh, it's weird, but it is. Um, and I think we're going to end, we're going to enter, uh, like a melancholic uh, period. Mm. Um, there are a lot of things that, uh, will, will change. I don't know if you know that the number one hit, uh, Jonathan in, in Israel last year was a song called, uh, chilling in the kibbutz. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. no one's going to play this song again and a lot of other songs. Yeah. Yeah. Melancholic is a very good word for the mood across the Jewish world at the moment, Muli, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Rightly so. Which means we will need you guys uh, even more. Uh, because yes, we'll, we'll be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't expect the news to be funny. So, I mean, <laughs> you're no. going to have to hold up your part, my friend. Um, mm -hmm. Muli, you, not only are we really so happy that, I, uh, that you came on, uh, also you win the intransigent guest of Unholy of all time. It just took me two years to convince you to, to, uh, to come on our show. So <laughs> we, are, we are very grateful that you did. Um, and it was... Uh, Thank you. It was really good to be reminded of how important you are for this, for this country. Thanks a lot, Muli. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Muli. So often the case that the jesters, the clowns, the comedians are the wisest and in some cases often the most sober and sort of somber voices. And I just, well, like I said to him, I thought melancholic is really perhaps the word of the, of the age of this period we're in. And he, he nailed it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, we are uh, towards the end of our um, episode. We should, uh, again, remind our listeners that on Tuesday, a bonus episode of Unholy will drop. It is our, I think, most personal conversation yet. Uh, you and I walking through and airing our different thoughts about what has been going on in our communities and obviously also in our friendship since this uh, war began. So it's called War Therapy, uh, and it will be out on Tuesday, uh, not to um, mess with our usually schedule, usual scheduling of Thursday. Um, we should say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Attic. A special thanks to Leo Friedman, and uh, we will meet twice next week, Jonathan. I hope you can stand it. <laughs> I definitely can. Uh, we'll see each other next week. Till then.